0: history History. through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes, presented on the air and online by Provident Payments, proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler.
1: Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We've learned they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to do something about it. Take a little initiative, ask some questions, and invest some time. You won't regret it. Our aim is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, as we are educated and we're entertained, so often we also find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Next week, I'm going to have the privilege of introducing you to one of the last men alive who participated in the liberation of Dachau concentration camp in Germany. But today, you're gonna hear the voices of five different World War II veterans. You can find all kinds of opinions on all kinds of chapters of history, but what's more valuable than hearing from those with firsthand experience? And as our country focuses this week on the Civil Rights Movement and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., maybe you'll hear some perspective you haven't considered before from five men who served in our segregated armed forces during World War II.
2: I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
1: You've heard me mention before on this program that some of the momentum for the civil rights movement was generated by what roughly one million African-American veterans demonstrated during World War II. It is no coincidence that within just three years after VJ Day, all the major professional sports leagues had been integrated. Trailblazers like Jackie Robinson and Woody Strode had served in the war. Among the interviews you can access at hometownheroesradio.com is a fascinating conversation with Baseball Hall of Famer Monty Irvin, who actually passed up the opportunity to break the color barrier in the big leagues because he was still trying to recover from the effects of his World War II service. The perspective of pioneering heart surgeon Fitzalbert Marius is another that you might find interesting to pull up online if you have the time. And there are so many books you can read. One of the most recent is Heroes in the Shadows, about the African-American sailors who died in the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. You can learn more about that book in an episode from last year. But the first of five veterans you're going to hear from today is Robert Hammond. He went on to an accomplished career in public health. But during World War II, he was a teenage corpsman attached to the all-black Mumford Point Marines. Growing up in New Jersey across the river from Philadelphia, Hammond had not experienced the kind of racial discrimination he would end up witnessing in uniform.
3: My great grandfather was the bandmaster for the original Buffalo Soldiers and my oldest brother was the last of the Buffalo Soldiers because they disbanded that. They used to go on parade and things like that from West Point. And they disbanded that and put those men into Patton's army. I found out if I I could go into the service at age 17, but the one that I could go into was the United States Navy. So I went down and joined the Navy and brought the papers back to get my mother to sign it. And she wouldn't sign it. And I said, well, if you don't sign it, I'll sign it for you. So she said, you really want to go? I said, yeah, nothing's going to happen to me. I'll be all right. So she signed it and I went into the Navy. I did not know what I was in for. Most of my friends were Italian people, Jewish people, and Polish people. And we went to school together in, in Camden. And a lot of these guys, they joined the Navy too. So we got on the train and we we're going to Great Lakes. The train went south and as it got into Washington D.C., they put it on the side the train and a conductor came through and persons of color you got to move to another car. So I said, "I'm not moving any place. I'm staying right here. You can't make me move." So my Italian friends and everybody crowded around me and they said, "No." If he moves, we move. So they said, well, we'll get, we'll get the police in here and lock all of you up. I said, well, we don't care. We're going to war anyway. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I might as well die here than die overseas. I said, matter of fact, what's going on? And then they came in and said, well, you're down south now, and you crossed the Mason-Dixon line, and we don't mix. At that time, they call us colored. They don't mix colored and white together anywhere in the south. And that was brand new to me, and it was also new to my friends. Where we grew up together, went to school together, and things like that, played ball, and they weren't going to take any stuff about all that segregation and Jim Crowism that they had in the South. So we stayed in that car. They they just locked the doors on us. not in there. So the car went through went through D.C., went through Virginia, and got over into, I think it was. Ohio, And that's when they, they didn't say anything. They came through and said, oh, you guys can go wherever you want. They unlocked the doors.
1: It sounds like, at least for a while, that was a pretty rude awakening for you. And, and I guess the question is, was that a sign of similar things to come for you?
3: Yes, it was. Pure hell. I'll put it that way. I mean, I had to endure a lot at that time
1: especially once he was sent to the swamp that was Montford Point, a segregated facility at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where the first 20,000 African-American members of the Marine Corps received their training.
3: What had happened was a Marine from New York had gotten off the bus and went into the station there and asked. they had brought in um, vending machines for cigarettes, and he walked into the white side, not paying attention. They had signs up, colored white then. He went to the white side and threw a dollar bill at the lady and asked, say, sweetheart, can we change for a dollar? And she threw four quarters at him, and then she looked at him and then screamed. And then the police came and arrested him and took the guy and put him in jail. Now, word got back to Mumford Point that there was a Marine in jail down there. So it got over to um, Bobby True. Sergeant Fisher, who was white, another sergeant, they didn't go for that discrimination because they weren't from the South. And they said, we're going to go get that Marine. 1,000 black Marines got in trucks with uh, 50-caliber machine guns on it. And we went into town, in that little old town. The railroad track went right down the middle, this side, and that black people this side, white people this side. City Hall was on this side, and we the police station was on that side, and we went down there, and we got down there. They were beating this Marine up. We arrested the whole police force. Wow. It was about eight eight policemen in there, the chief of police and everybody else, and took them back to Mumford Point and put them in the brig. Then all hell broke out from that. The Commandant of Marine Corps... Um, He came over. What are are you men going into town arresting police officers for? So we told him what he did. He said, we're not going to leave a Marine behind. What are you talking about? You're the commandant of the whole Marine Corps. Would you leave him behind? We had um, Tom McFadder at the time, Sergeant Thomas McFadder. He was the one that said, can't leave him there. Tom wrote a book called Caught in the Middle, and he became a Navy chaplain later on. But anyway, we um, took the Marine back, locked those officers up. The colonel just left us alone. They said, you guys go ahead and do what you're going to do. Just left, left us alone. And we kept those policemen in there for five days in the brig on bread and water <laughs> and turned them loose. And we told them, don't you ever mess with a Marine again. That's what McFadder told them. Don't mess with any of these Montfort Point Marines. Because people were spitting on them, and 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 just harassing them and treating them mean. Boy, where'd you get that uniform? You know, don't belong in it. And spit on. Them. They cut all that stuff was cut out. But that was to me, it was outrageous behavior, and I had never seen this. Here, I'm going to go fight Germans, and Japanese, and here they're treating us worse than them because. They had some German prisoners of war there. They treated them better than us. So that kind of got us. Later on at Muffet Point, another thing happened that's not written about, and that was the Royal Dutch Marines came to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, 5,000 of them. And these Marines had come from, I think they were over in... uh, North Africa someplace. When Hitler invaded their land, they went over there. Then they went to the Caribbean, and then they went through training. And they were there at Camp Majuna to learn amphibious training because they're going to reinvade where Hitler was and where the Japanese was in the Pacific. And what they said was the commandant, the Marine Corps, came and told the... Uh, commandant of those Royal Dutch Marines because they had 500 black Royal Dutch Marines. And he did not want those black Marines in Camp Lejeune. Told that commander, send those Marines over to Mumford Point. We segregate them here. That did not fly. That commander says you wouldn't You don't leave a Marine behind, we're not going to leave any of ours. Those are our Marines. Where they go, we go. Now, if they're going to Mumford Point, we went. So 5,000 Royal Dutch Marines went over to Mumford Point, and we had a ball with those guys. I mean, especially, you know, know, after going down to the beer hall and all of that, with the music and things, we had a ball with those guys. They stayed there for three or four weeks. And then they left. But that was an experience to see. And what it did to me, I said, my God, I'd write letters home to my mother and tell her about it. And she'd say, Robert, I'm going to tell you something. If people are going to be prejudiced against you, make them pay for it. Don't you ever forget them. Make them spend some money. That's the only thing they know is money. (laughs) So... That stuck with me throughout my lifetime. In marching, if you ever watch the Marines march, you'll see a swagger that they got from the Mumford Point Marines, from Big Elmo. They put these men in ammo companies and supply companies, not in combat battalions. We all had weapons. If we had to use them, we used them. But we had all the food all the medical supplies we had all the ammunition we had everything the marines would want and we brought those to those islands
1: and you ended up uh, on guam is that right
3: i ended up there camp Wise, at the at the medical dispensary on guam that was we had a small hospital there then over at, we called the barracuda village near a, near the airfield up there in the Ghana. Later on, we had two black doctors. One was a Lieutenant J.G., another one was a full Lieutenant. Alvin Lawrence was Lieutenant. He was from Chicago. C.J. Jones from New York, from Brooklyn, he was Lieutenant J.G. They had some stories. I wish they were alive because they told me what they were up against as officers. A lot of the white sailors and Marines wouldn't salute them. And Dr. Jones went and put his hat on a uh, post and told this Marine, if you can't salute me, you salute that hat. But he went through a lot. But if somebody, and and he was a surgeon, and he treated a lot of those guys. And one of the things that they did, they carried, I think they carried segregation too far. They segregated blood. One X for white, two X for black, three X for Mexican. 4X for Native American on the bottles when blood is only A, A, B and O, you you know and one time in surgery I went and got they were operating on this um, white guy they needed blood and they told me to go down and bring back some A blood I brought back a bottle of A blood I didn't know nothing about these X's and it had two X's on it I handed it to the nurse she dropped it on the floor Broke it, and the the doctor there operate. what did you drop that for and she said we can't give him use the n-word blood wow. and that doctor said listen blood is blood i wanted a blood give it to him i don't care what the x's are it doesn't mean a damn thing right. so in the meantime you had a hematologist named Charles Drew, Dr. Charles Drew, who invented blood plasma. The United States wouldn't use its plasma, so he took it to England. And when Hitler was bombing England, 1945, tearing it up, there was a shortage of blood. The Americans wanted to know, you have a shortage of blood over there? He said, no, we use Dr. Drew's blood plasma. And they said, oh, we can't use that, it's... Crystal, we, we, we can't segregate it. And they laughed at the American doctors for that. See? And then they started using it. And right then and there, they start using this plasma, and they took the mexes off those bottles. And then Roosevelt died after that. When Roosevelt died and Harry Truman got in there, all sorts of things were happening in the armed forces, black troops, the Army. You had Camp Van Dorn. You had Fort Bliss riots. You had um, Port Chicago, and there was one up, Shoemaker, there was one up there, Tuskegee Airmen. There's one in Louisiana. All these broke out, and it started affecting the war effort, and Harry Truman says, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to have none of that. We're going to integrate the whole thing, and I don't care if those southern colonels and generals object to it, they could get the hell out. That's what they could do. So the whole thing got integrated in forty eight and all that stuff stopped. My learning from being in the Marine Corps, that was my career. I used to be the suture man. I could sew a guy up. I mean, really sew him up. And some of these Mumford Pointers, even today when they see me, They call me the devil doc. (laughs) They said, see that hand, you sewed it up. And it was perfect. Dr. Jones used to say, who did this? I said, I did. He says, you you need to be a surgeon. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to keep people from getting sick. I was very grateful to have that kind of experience. I mean, racism, Jim Crowism, I broke down a lot of those barriers. I've got a thousand stories I could, st- could tell in regards to mistreatment, but I had some good treatment.
1: Especially in 2012 when Robert Hammond and other corpsmen joined those Mumford Point Marines they tended to in Washington, D.C. to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. Inscribed on each one of those medals are the words for outstanding perseverance and courage that inspired social change in the Marine Corps.
3: Well, I felt very proud of that because it made me feel that I'm 100% American in that, and I remember when we went to the... Um, memorializing of the uh, Battle of Iwo Jima at uh, Arlington Cemetery. President Clinton was there and he, we were there, and he mentioned, he said, those men over there are members of the double V. And we all laughed and did that to him. He knew what it was. He said they had two wars to fight, one at abroad and one at home, and they won both of them. Then that made me feel proud. And to get that Congressional Gold Medal made me even feel prouder because it brought back some pleasant memories, like at the Brooklyn Naval Hospital when I was there, we were all lined up outside for the President. Harry Truman came to to visit the hospital, and we were at Captain's Muster there, and he came down, came right over to me, he says, "Boy, he says, "Son, you're looking good," and he straightened my tie and shook hands at me and he kept on going with his big hat President of the United States so all of these things turn to you know being a citizen of being born in this country and I say now sometimes I say now who do I really belong to you know I'm not going to say I belong to this group I belong to that group I belong to all of them so that makes me 100% American with no hyphens
1: That was Robert Hammond. You can link to his complete original interview at hometownheroesradio.com. And when we come back, a Tuskegee airman whose memories include the infamous Freeman Field mutiny. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with Search Strategy Marketing. It's not about how much you spend. It's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is. Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that lightbulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level.
0: Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes, celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty
2: and come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself. But I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy.
1: Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., in his famous I've been to the mountaintop speech in Memphis in 1968 just before he was killed.
2: And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world.
1: As our nation remembers the legacy of Dr. King and the civil rights movement this week, here on Hometown Heroes, we're drawing your attention to a precursor to that, the service of approximately one million African-American men and women in World War II. We've heard about some of the life-threatening situations they faced overseas, but the inherent challenges of a still-segregated military also presented opportunities for courageous stands that would fuel what happened in the decades that followed. One of those has come to be known as the Freeman Field Mutiny, described here by Mitch Higginbotham, a Tuskegee airman who would fly with the 477th bomb group.
4: At that time, there had been a lot of unrest, racial unrest in the city of Detroit, and race riots had broken out all over Detroit and caused quite a a crisis situation. The uh, commanders at Selfish Field was afraid that that all was going to spill over into the military. They had segregated the officers' club there at Selfridge for white officers only, and weren't, blacks weren't permitted in the officers' club at Selfridge. Well, as a result of all this, uh, the decision-makers in Washington decided that uh, we would uh, had to leave the Detroit area, and there was uh, a field... A service field available uh, called Godman Field in Louisville, Kentucky. It's uh, adjacent to Fort Knox, right? And um, it's it wasn't designed for that type of combat training at all. It was very insufficient, but that's where they relocated the 477th Bomb Group, and of course. Uh, There wasn't a racial problem there because the little officers club at Godman was, they were gladly relegated that to the black officers because the the white personnel, officer personnel could uh, use the officers club at Fort Knox and it's approximately across the street. And so there was no problem there until when they found out how inadequate Godman feel, they decided to move the bomber group to Freeman Field near Seymour, Indiana, which is about 40, 50 miles from Indianapolis. And we'd heard about some difficulties there in the officers' club. We had decided then that we couldn't uh, tolerate that situation. And when we arrived there at Freeman, there was a group of some of our fellows thought that uh, they would test entry to the officers club and of course the the commander found out that this was anticipated and he had designated the Provost Marshal to be there to see that uh, his segregated orders were carried out. We had decided uh, in pairs of uh, threes or fours we would go over to test the officers club and uh, so that was where trouble began. (laughs) uh, Well,
1: you saw trouble coming, didn't you?
4: Yes, indeed, we did, really. Uh, We knew that it was going to be a a confrontation, uh, but didn't know what the the, uh, nature of it would finally end up as. Commander Robert Selway, uh, Colonel Robert Selway, then...
1: uh, Who was white.
4: Yes, indeed, he was... And he, acting in collusion with his uh, commander, uh, I guess he was three, three or four-star general. Uh, Hunter was uh, head of the entire uh, First Air Force, which we were a part of. Right. So, uh, Selway ordered the fellows that went into the club there to be ar- arrested. They were placed in house arrest for uh, over uh, uh, overnight and the next day he got the, the situation formalized Then, whereby all of us would be given an opportunity being interviewed one at a time and being ordered directly to sign papers that we read and understood the orders and and would abide by them so
1: you basically had to promise not to go into the all-white officers club
4: again well there was more than a promise it was a matter of uh, being individually ordered right. not to use by our immediate uh, commanding officer and uh, read the articles of war uh, regarding uh, direct orders in time of warfare. And one section which was uh, emphasized was the refusal to obey a direct order in time of warfare was punishable up to and including death. And of course, death was emphasized. Mm-hmm. And uh, even in the face of all that, 104 of us refused to sign. There was about, oh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 500 black officers and and maybe less than 100 white officers, maybe 85 or so. When the 104 of us uh, refused to sign, General Hunter sent down, we were placed under arrest immediately.
1: Well, and, and I want to get into your mindset because obviously there's strength in numbers, and if 104 of you are doing it, it's uh, maybe a little easier than doing it all by yourself.
4: But you hit on the you hit on a good point there. The but where does on that head, so to speak?
1: Where does that courage come from, though? Well, what
4: made you decide I'm not going to sign? And, this? this is where the difficult situation arose because we had no idea how many would refuse. And uh, if only a dozen or a half dozen of us refused in the in the face of uh, the uh, Articles of War, then we would have been out on a limb all alone, and I'm sure that limb would have been sought off.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: It just so happened that on principle we absolutely refused, and not knowing how many would be in our group, if it had been only a few, then of course they would have thrown the book at us. But being over a hundred black officers in the 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 black newspapers across the country, the Chicago Defender, Amsterdam News in New York, and the Pittsburgh Courier in Pittsburgh, which was the leading black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, and that was read by white officers and then across <laughs> some of our white officers as well. But uh, they put pressure and then we contacted NACP. Well first we we were flown by.
1: Well, and I want to get all that timeline but I'm really interested in in your personal decision to do this knowing that they could throw the book at you, that anything could happen up to execution. But you had the courage to stand up and say this is wrong, I'm not signing this. Where did that come from? How did you arrive at that decision?
4: Well, I was always incensed by this kind of action. <laughs> and uh, I would determine, you know, it was a matter of principles that I just couldn't um, couldn't stomach to be a part of uh, something that where, in first place, ordering you to sign your name, I felt was... Uh, Illegal, I even know, you know, but uh, I just, from what education and whatnot that I had, I knew it wasn't right, and uh, I was uh, determined to uh, go by principles and uh, face the music, so to speak. No matter
1: what it meant, nothing scared you off.
4: Well, it didn't, and uh, you look back, we were 20-year-old guys, 21, 20, 19, some of us, and... uh, just uh, were determined that uh, that we wouldn't uh, succumb to that sort of arrangement.
1: So they arrested you?
4: They arrested, and General Hunter sent down three C-47s, and they marched us down to the, the flight lines, and the enlisted men were observing and taking pictures of what was going on with their cameras, and most of the cameras were confiscated, but some of them got through, and uh, they had pictures on the front page of the black newspapers, liking the situation to Hitler's uh, <laughs> actions in Germany. Mm. And uh, so I have some copies of, of the Pittsburgh Courier citing uh, these pictures and citing in the headlines uh, the, the Gestapo type of operations that was occurring at Freeman Field, Indiana.
1: Well, that's a pretty powerful comparison, <laughs> given everything that people had heard about what was happening in Europe.
4: Indeed, uh, and in our lockup, we contacted the um, NACP, and uh, Thurgood Marshall was head of the legal department. The NACP had agreed to to represent us in the court-martial trial. With so was so much pressure. We had some influential black people, the professionals, the parents of uh, many of us, and uh, they applied pressure. The pressures uh, exerted were sufficient to get a change. And they sent down um, a group of uh, colonels from, from Washington to investigate the situation. And they investigated uh, in Freeman, and they came down to Godman. We had a fellow named Coleman Young, who later became mayor of Detroit for four terms. Yeah. He was uh, one of us, and he was uh, maybe a year or two older than me, for instance. He had had some training as a a labor leader in the auto workers' union there in Detroit. So he had some kind of uh, knowledge, and uh, those kind of pressures uh, eventually ended up in 101 of us being released. With letters of reprimand placed in our files, reprimanding us for that type of uh, disobedience, that remained on our records till 1995. So for
1: 50 years, even though you'd yeah. been released, you still had this.
4: Uh... Yeah, still had the reprimand on our on our records of 101. But the three that were court-martial, Bill Terry, uh, Mars, and Thompson. And Shirley Clinton. Two of the fellows were found not guilty, I guess you'd call it. And one fellow was convicted in the court-martial.
5: And that
1: was your roommate?
4: That was my roommate, Bill Terry. Viltere was convicted and fined $150. But in 1995,
1: he received a full pardon and got his $150 back. The so-called Freeman Field Mutiny, a significant moment on the path towards the integration of our armed forces, and eventually the other developments that we celebrate this week in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can link to the original full-length interviews with the veterans you're hearing from today at hometownheroesradio.com, and we'll be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I gotta tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. What I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328.
0: Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, Brought to you by this local station and its sponsors. And presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest-growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com.
2: I have a dream. That my four little children
1: If we want to see that dream consistently fulfilled, it's up to each of us to set that example. And that's a sentiment echoed on this program by many over the years who served in America's then-segregated armed forces during World War II. Earl Watson was part of the 1317th Engineer General Services Regiment, building bridges in Europe. We reached
6: the Rhine River, and we put a bridge across there in 11 days under fire, and that was a horrible thing. They don't call that... A battle the Rhine River but it was a battle because it was under fire and you could only step there about three hours because of the odor and everything else and we got across that Rhine River and to make a long story short we ran into the Russians in the middle of Germany where we were working on the train tracks and ran into the Russians and we knew the war was over because we met the Russians in the heart of Germany and then after that they said they're gonna put us on a boat for 65 days on our way to Manila, France. I mean the Philippines. Go by home, go right by United States, and not go home after three years. I'm telling you, it was an awful thing. And then, and then they said on the, in the ship U.S. Harry Taylor. They said, what's the bow of the ship as it points towards New York. We're going home." And man, we saw that Statue of Liberty from a little bitty dot until it grew very large, and and we landed and. Uh, New York, and took a train upstate New York, and I had a very bad problem on the train. Train stopped for a half an hour, and all the soldiers got off, and they refused to sell me an American hot dog after all that time, and I was crying, and I didn't want to argue with the guy that was selling the, the hot dogs, and the, the white soldiers asked me, how come I don't have a hot hot dog and i told him he refused to sell me one so they ordered me three hot dogs and wouldn't pay him, and wouldn't pay him for their hot dog and said they ought to beat him up <laughs> and we got out of the trade and it went on up to camp shanks uh up there in new york and then i was discharged from the army and, and being from chicago where it's so cold and, and living during the depression and everything that i decided i would uh i decided that that i would take my release and go to california and live with my sister and my brother.
1: That move to California ended up connecting him to quite a few celebrities once he became the doorman at Hollywood's Knickerbocker Hotel. The late Earl Watson even wrote a book about that. Tuskegee Airman Frank Macon also wrote a book that I have linked for you at hometownheroesradio.com. The Runway, Where Frank Learned to Fly, is the one cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy now use in Frank's native Colorado Springs. But heading to Alabama as a young pilot during World War II brought some new experiences for Frank. Frank.
7: I wasn't used to uh, being down south, and I wasn't used to that because uh, the school I went to was integrated. Native Americans, uh, Mexicans, and uh, blacks were all, and along Irish and everybody else was, you know. <laughs> and so uh, it was just it really confusing me. And water for I, I had to go into this bathroom or, or toilet, you know, facility. Or I couldn't drink out of this fountain, and uh, all all of that. And it was just really ridiculous, and I had just never been involved in anything like that.
1: And, of course, a lot of these pilots that you're studying with and training with had grown up in the South, and had had a, a much different experience. How eye-opening was that for you to glean some of what they'd been through?
7: The, the thing was that, well, I couldn't understand anything they were saying, and they couldn't understand anything I was saying. When they found out I came from Colorado, well, well, the first thing was uh, we're fighting the Indians all the time, you know. And of course, I just play it up, and 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 my grandfather was an Indian, <laughs> and and they wanted to know uh, how do you do out there. I said, well, of course he was, and I said, well, my grandfather's chief of the tribe, you know. <laughs> and the guys from Denver were. Uh, there was something in, in there, you know. And they'd just help along with <laughs> There were so many phrases, uh, phraseology. I was used to. I, I just had no knowledge of the way they talked. And it was really confusing. In basic, we were in, in Biloxi, Mississippi. It was strange. I, I don't know how to put it, but uh, having to go to a, a separate restroom or something like that. And I, I just, I said, well, I'll be glad I get out of this place, you know. And then, of course, got to Tuskegee. And Tuskegee is really not in the town of Tuskegee, it's in a place called Greenwood, it's a suburb. And if you went to Tuskegee, the town, the atmosphere was much different. You, you could just feel it, you know. But out in Greenwood, you just didn't see any whites. Of course, now when we got to, and our instructor, were all black. But then when we got to the air base, started in basic and advanced, all of those were whites. And uh, a lot of them are from the north, so uh, they weren't too bad.
1: And you know, with the lens of history, we can look back now and say that what all of you did during World War II, the African American soldiers, sailors, airmen, who risked their lives, laid the groundwork for the Civil Rights Movement, that they showed our blood is just as red as any other American, that if we can die for our country, we deserve some rights. We say that now, but did you guys have a sense then that there was something you had a chance to prove?
7: Now, I don't know about the rest of the group, but I didn't feel that I had anything to prove. I knew what I could do, and I had learned to fly, before I even went there and they cautioned me here never mentioned that you know how to fly so I didn't and uh, an airplane was just as normal as an automobile to me so my mindset was not as
1: the others Well you hadn't dealt with the degree of prejudice in your life that they had I
7: guess No and well and the other thing is uh, I felt much different than most of them because I just didn't seem to think like they thought, you know. I was practically raised with white people, you know. And and they used to say that, uh, what do they call it? Say that you're an oriole. You're you're, uh, dark on the outside and white on the inside. Mm. (laughs) You know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, I guess that's true, but I didn't realize it. I don't look at a white person. I do not look at a, quote, black person. And those terminologies, uh, I have never seen a white person in my life, and I've never seen a black one. You take a piece of paper, of white, and put your hand on it. You're not, you're not white. I take that same black piece of paper and put it on it. And this color and dividing people up by color or something like that is stupid just absolutely
1: stupid. You would not have found any argument to that from Frank Macon's fellow Tuskegee Airman Bob Friend, who flew 142 missions in P-51 Mustangs in the 15th Air Force during World War II. If you've ever seen the film Red Tails, you have an idea of how expendable those red-tailed P-51s were in their role of protecting the all-important bombers as their first line of defense.
5: We were that. There's no doubt about that. And uh, certainly... Uh, the objective was to allow that bomber to do its mission. And certainly, yes, we were the buffer. But strangely enough, they didn't concentrate on us nearly as much as they did on trying to get the bombers down. So it was fairly easy as a rule to chase them off. Don't get me wrong, they would get through sometimes because... They'd get above and start a dive and just dive straight through. It's almost like suicide. You're going to get caught and picked up after, if not before he gets there. But uh, they, too, had an objective, and that was protect their homeland.
1: And they had uh, a variety of different planes. At the end of the war, they had planes that were faster and superior to even the one you were flying. Did you ever engage any of those ME-262s?
5: Yes, I met in 262, and... Strangely, I met him head-on, and uh, I didn't realize we were going head-on. I thought first that I was overtaking him. The silhouette looked the same, but then when I saw the guns firing, I knew that uh, we were coming toward each other. And we went the right path. When I turned around, he was gone.
1: That's one of those you don't even figure out what it was till it's gone, huh?
5: Well, dogfights are funny. It can be going on, you know, rather heavily. And then all of a sudden there's nothing. Everybody's gone. Some People took off for home, others. And it was important for us not to go chasing after them because if you did, you left the bombers open to secondary attacks. I
1: thought that was a dynamic that was um, well depicted in the in the George Lucas film, Red Tails, that aspect of, hey, you've got to stick to the plan, not be going for the glory and chasing down a fighter. Was that ever a temptation of yours to, to go after one of those German planes?
5: Well, you know, it's like once you get locked on to him, you know, you don't want to let go. But uh, we had some well-grounded discipline, and that was don't, don't be drawn off.
1: Where did that come from?
5: The commander. Colonel Davis was a man that had a tough job. What he had to do was to take people who were relatively raw. All of us, how far much, much more experience could you say one had? You know, guy graduated in first class, guy graduated a month later in second class. And he, from these people, had to take people for, or uh, identify people for key positions squadron commanders, group operations officers, squadron operations officers, maintenance officers, mm-hmm. you know. And he had to get the right guy, best of all. He recognized when he had made a mistake with a guy, and he made the change right away. He did not mess around. That's leadership for you. With all
1: those missions, I'm sure you had plenty of close calls. But is there one for you that when you think back on, you feel like, you know, God was really looking out for me on that one?
5: Yes. We had some of those. uh, I I had a barge explode, and I flew through all that debris. Got through okay. And uh, the um, ones that, not direct, but it happens, Uh, when on one mission, the fellow that was going to lead the mission said, Who's flying Charlie today? Charlie was the last position in the squadron.
1: Tail and Charlie.
5: So I said, I'll find Charlie. So he said, Well, let's switch airplanes. Mine's a newer airplane, and Charlie has a lot more activity, you know, staying in formation and so forth. So you take that, and I'll fly yours. He never came back. airplane quit on him.
1: So that would have been you and the airplane that quit.
5: Yes. And uh, other instances, of when uh, attacking a ground target, you can see the rounds coming. And actually, you can do things about it. If it looks like it's going to hit you, you're okay because it goes like this. But if it looks like it's going by in front... Be careful, you better change something, change speed, change change direction, change something, because it was pretty much hanging on to you then.
1: I'm sure you found plenty of bullet holes in, in your planes, but with stuff like that, with that anti-aircraft uh, fire coming at you, what's the closest that actually came to hitting you? You personally, I mean your body, not your plane. I
5: never came close to being hit. I know that there were friends who we had rounds go through, the cockpit, mm-hmm. you know, one guy, the, uh, the first aid kit was behind your back. Took the first aid kit out. Another one, the round died just as it got there, and it stayed stuck in as it went yeah.
1: Close enough. Yes. How, how much did you enjoy the plane you were flying? For people that haven't experienced that airplane, what was it like for you?
5: That airplane, the P-51... Absolutely. So far ahead of its time, it really can be said that it swung the war. It swung the things in our direction without question. And as far as the pilots feel, I didn't feel like I climbed into an airplane. I felt like I put it on. I wore
0: it.
1: (laughs) And uh, the look on your face says you, you wouldn't mind wearing it again, that you would go out there right now if there was one out here on the tarmac. I certainly would love
5: to. Yeah, I know that people think I'm a little too old for that, but I don't think you ever forget some things, and that's one of them. They've let me fly the airplane sometime after we got up, and I fly it okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Why do you think it's important to tell the story of the Tuskegee Airmen? What's the value of that for us today in knowing what you guys did and what you went through?
5: Well... I, I think the most important aspects of it is not to let it happen again. The reason we don't need it again. I think that we, all you have to do is look at the relationships the people at events like this. Much different. Much different. Some people, these people that you would probably never have had words for. What do you say? I know that uh, the country itself has just absorbed so much in the way of the business and race relations. I feel that we should not even bother with considerations about race. I'm not saying that people should not like their heritage. I like mine. I'm proud of my heritage. but uh, I don't think that it should be something that we say African American, Indian American, Mexican American, Latin American, German American, Canadian-American. Who needs that? You're an American or you not.
1: Frank words from the late Tuskegee airman Bob Friend, and a challenge to each of us to live up to the ideals inked on parchment by our founding fathers, proclaimed by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a couple hundred years later, and a target only a truly united States of America can ever achieve. Thanks for listening to Hometown Heroes Today. I'm Paul Leffler, reminding you again
0: that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.